You're listening to AGM Perspectives. Welcome to episode two, ATN Perspectives with Rebecca Hall. I'm your host, Sally Way of the Australian Technology Network of Universities. Rebecca Hall leads Austrade's engagement in promoting Australia's international education sector. The timing's a little bittersweet as Rebecca is soon to be leaving Austrade to become the new commissioner for Victoria to South East Asia, bringing an extensive experience in global engagement, industry policy and strategy to the new role. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. I imagine you've reflected a lot on your time at Austrade in the last couple of weeks. What are you most looking forward to in your new role? Oh, great question. Um, I have been, yes, it's an interesting time to be changing roles. Uh, but what I'm most looking forward to is actually continuing to support the international education sector, albeit um, for one state um, and in a region uh, like ASEAN, which has uh, so much to offer, but also to apply that knowledge to a broader trade and investment role as well. So um, I do think, uh, obviously, COVID has uh, delivered significant challenges uh, for each of us, uh, for our communities and our economies. And so being part of shaping something new is pretty exciting. Sounds awesome. And I imagine that not only do you get to use your passion for international education, you'd also be really keen to broaden your mix and become passionate about a few other um, export industries. In, indeed. And I think anyone who works in education knows, though, um, when, you, when you understand the education offering and Australia's um, great uh, depth of experience and knowledge, you can see education as an enabler for every one of our industries, whether we're talking about biotech or health or mining or agriculture. So, um, yes, expanding, but also then using the education and, and the research knowledge as, as the basis. You had a number of roles in international education, including going from the university sector to the government sector. Um, would you mind telling me a little bit about your international education journey? Sure, I would love to. Um, <clears throat> actually, I tell people long before the new Colombo plan, I was uh, fortunate to um, study at Griffith University and my undergraduate had a mandatory uh, mobility placement. So I went to Malaysia uh, for about a month and worked on an export market plan for a local uh, company here in, in Queensland. I don't think they are in business anymore, but they were exporting soft drinks uh, to, to Asia and wanted to open up a new market opportunity in Malaysia. So that was the first time I had a passport, uh, first time I went overseas. And um, of course, the rest is, is history. I wanted to be part of uh, of that. I wanted to learn more about the world. And so actually my first job in government was uh, for the Japanese government on the JET program, an exchange teaching program, which I, uh, I did in my 20s and then came back to work in in local, state and now federal government. Uh, but as you pointed out, I've been fortunate to work in the sector as well. So uh, I think uh, certainly for the way that Austrade works and this type of role, uh, it's, it's quite a privilege to be inside government, but also to be advocating and working on behalf of the sector. And um, you need to have had experience in the sector to, to do that. So it certainly kept me um, uh, curious and, and motivated and um, uh, passionate about uh, delivering great international education experiences and um, seeing all the different parties that need to come together for that to work, whether it's 
you know, the regulation of government or the promotion of government in, in my current role, uh, how providers are delivering that value, how our communities are involved as well. So always something more to learn and do for me. Couldn't agree more, um, especially in international education. It's ever-changing, ever-growing, ever and um, I don't think we've seen the last of it just yet. We've just seen a blip in the road, which leads me into my next question, which is during coronavirus, we've seen the states take the lead on potentially bringing back international students into Australia. You've worked for both the Victorian and Queensland state governments in international education. What are some measures that all states could be doing to enhance the role of international education in their state economies? Yeah, great, great question. And um, yes, that's certainly been a focus of Austrade over the past couple of years as well, how we align the efforts of all states and territories to support international education. I do think uh, one of the challenges that we have uh, during a crisis like COVID is how we manage the message in, in the media. And so um, uh, even that very question, we, we actually know that all states and territories are supporting international education. Every one of them has an international education strategy and a focus on how they support students and their institutions. Uh, the, the open borders or the, the secure borders programs, the, the student pilots, uh, are initiated by the states and territories, but obviously there is a role for the Australian government in, in making sure that uh, we can uh, enable students to come through, we can manage that, that process. So um, I think what we're seeing is obviously a local response or a, um, a localised response, depending on the size of the state and territory and uh, the opportunity for them to safely bring back cohorts of, of students. Uh, for, for me, one of the most um, uh, heartening uh, things during uh, the, the crisis, we, we've been using the hashtag in this together. Uh, it originally started as a, as a way to reach out to students in, in China, but for, for us across states and territories uh, and, and with yours trade work, it's really been a way for us to align our efforts and support each other and to recognise that, um, you know, depending on the size of your cohort, whether you're Darwin with 2,500 students or you're Queensland with 130,000 students, the, uh, we have a common goal, which is to support those students that are here, uh, to work with our health officials to bring back students uh, safely, as we are bringing back uh, many other Australians and, and others who uh, who are coming into, into Australia as well during this time. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's a real maturation of where the states and territories are at and the support that they're offering. Uh, of course, it doesn't come um, doesn't come easily as well. There are there are challenges, but who would have thought in 2020 we would have a national cabinet uh, to to lead this work as well. It's been um, an in, certainly an interesting development and it's been great to see how the states um, have gotten themselves involved and the value that they place not only on international education itself but the students that are involved. I, I've found it really heartening that a lot of them have been involved in the hardship funds that have been developed for international students over the course of the pandemic. Indeed, and I think one of our jobs within Austrade has been to show the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So to show each of those um, uh, services or programs, um, and to make sure that as many students, uh, providers, and 
uh, those who need those services are aware of them, uh, but also to learn from the design features of, of those services. So it's been a, a big focus for us, probably much more behind the scenes than what you would see um, openly, but also trying to promote that to students. So we're getting the information in the hands of the people who need it. Yes. How Australia sells international education, our fourth largest export, has been a point of contention between the government and the sector over quite some time. We started with images of kangaroos and surfboards, but we've now moved to pitching it as a knowledge-based export, teaching our region's future leaders. What are your reflections on this? Great question. Yes, I feel like that could be on a assignment for students who are studying destination brand and marketing as well. Um, I, I do think uh, that we have come a long way in how we are uh, presenting Australia to the world. And in fact, uh, those things that we are known for, whether they be kangaroos or koalas or our beaches or our, our amenity in our place are actually very well known. Uh, and in fact, we need, we don't, it's not that we don't want to sell that, it's that people are aware of that and connect Australia to those images. Uh, the opportunity now, I think, is, as you've said, to move uh, to positioning Australia for um, our research, our science, our contribution to the world through those areas and indeed the contribution that our graduates are making to the world. So we have certainly shifted in the past two years under the, um, the leadership of the Nation Brand team, trying to understand what is that, uh, that unique combination of Australia's uh, place, which we're well known for, um, adding our people to that, and then ultimately our product. What is it that uh, that students are coming to Australia for? What are they attracted here for? And whilst uh, we would love to, and we do include pictures of classrooms and our beautiful campuses, uh, which are uh, absolutely critical to that, we actually know that um, the key thing almost every student is looking for is to be transformed or is to undertake some kind of transformation, whether that be in in their learning uh, in the classroom, whether that be in personal development. And Australia actually is a place where you can uh, you can grow, you can learn, you can innovate. I think the the uptake of international students involved in our entrepreneurial programs, innovation programs has just been astounding and we're going to see the benefits of that I think in our graduates and alumni co cohorts in years to come uh, because we've made that that investment and I've gone a little bit off track there but I do think that is it's it's positioning Australia as uh, the destination to uh, to welcome uh, people from many different backgrounds uh, so I'm not just talking about best and brightest many different backgrounds who want to make a contribution and to take that back to the world. That's what, we're, uh, that's what we're selling and that means that you can do that in Australia, you can do that online, you can do that through our transnational campuses, wherever you may be, there's an opportunity to, to engage with Australian education. I really like that explanation um, and it leads into my, um, my sort of sub-question. Do you think we need to do a better job of explaining the benefits of international education in an Australian context? And I mean for domestic students um, and I guess the voting public. Yeah, and I think it's, it's become so evident during COVID as well, uh, you know, particularly in terms of what we might be reading or seeing in, in the media. Uh, I, I do think uh, the Australian public doesn't fully understand the value that international education brings. 
Um, it's uh, it's uh, tangible. You can see an international student um, on the bus uh, in the street connected in our community. Uh, you don't see that for other services exports or, or other goods exports, of course. Um, but we we have to make sure that for us to maintain our social licence, the Australian public does need to understand the value of international education and what our students are, are bringing. I think the lived experience as well, obviously, um, is so important here. So it is making sure that if there are if there are areas or regions or um, experiences that aren't living up to our promise, then we need to address those. Um, and I know I'm saying that particularly if we do have um, you know cohorts uh, of of students who may feel that they're not um, they're not gaining what they wanted from their education. Uh, but it's 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 not our international students' um, issue there. It's it's broader areas that we need broader policy areas that I think. Uh, we're going to need to discuss seriously about the student experience and about our appetite for um, international students in our community. And I guess leading on from that, um, what do you see the long-term outlook being for international education post-corona? Mm. I, I, I'm actually positive about the long-term outlook. Uh, I know in the short term there are going to be challenges. There are personal challenges for our students. There are personal challenges for staff in institutions and in service providers that uh, may need to to restructure their organizations but longer term uh, I can see and I would I would like to think that we can uh, take uh, take the great strides take the great wins that have come over the past uh, six months in terms of our um, improvement in online in terms of our uh, working collectively across states and territories all of those things that we have delivered uh, during the crisis and how do we actually make sure that we embed the good uh, and uh, and learn from those areas or address those areas that aren't serving us. Um, I do think there is an opportunity to move away from an either or. Um, are you studying online or are you face to face? Are you um, uh, you know, a student looking for migration or for another purpose? I think we need to lift our conversation to uh, one around talent and Australia's role in developing global talent and contributing to uh, contributing to to the world and 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 we can do that in a variety of different ways uh, and with a range of different stakeholders and players as well. I think this debate uh, or what we see in the media plays out very much that international education is uh, is the purvey of just universities, but of course, as you know, there are many other uh, exporters and many other service providers that are involved in in international education as well and that's what I would like to see moving forward a recognition of uh, all of those um, all of those benefits that spread uh, way beyond our capital cities and way beyond our university campuses excellent answer um, I'm just going to do a little bit of a step change here um, Israel and South Korea are players in both the startup and technology industries um, industries with extensive linkages uh, with ATN universities. What lessons can Australian learn from their examples? Because they've got really small populations, but by, by goodness, are they punching above their weight in, in terms of outputs? I was wondering if you're going to use punching above their weight. Yes, we um, we normally like to use that in the Australian context. Um, I think it's a great, great question. And I think now is the time to be looking uh, at, uh, at what other countries are doing well and how we might apply that given that we are we, we will need to consider 
entirely new policy responses. Uh, I think one of the key things I personally have never, uh, never been, uh, never visited, but uh, certainly from my reading and the work that the Austrade team has done there and with our landing pad um, in Israel as well, I think access to capital uh, and incentivising innovation have been two key drivers of, of change. Uh, but as you mentioned, I think every Aiton university has some kind of partnership or relationship. I think that global, um, global outlook and global reach has been has been critical. If I could bring it to two examples that are happening right now in in Australia, I'm not sure if you've seen uh, the CSIRO Mission Possible um, call to action around the opportunity for us to look at what a science and technology led recovery to COVID. Um, could could entail and the role of our universities, the role of our research institutions and researchers, and indeed our international partners in in delivering on that. So, um, I've answered two questions there, but I think um, uh, we we have opportunity now to do things differently with where who we fund and how we incentivise innovation, and also how we're accessing capital. If we can do that um, uh, well, then I think we've got a great opportunity uh, post COVID. Good answer. In the last 10 years, Australia's ratified a multitude of free trade agreements. Has international aid featured in most of these? Um, and if not, why not? And I guess to to flip it so that it doesn't sound too whingy, um, are, are we good at explaining why we should be included to government who ultimately make these agreements with other governments? Uh, yes, good good question. Uh, yes, we have, um, and of course our, our Minister has been leading uh, many of those in recent times as well, and of course IACEPA uh, being ratified uh, uh, just this year. So um, yes, many free trade agreements, and there, there are two parts to it, as you say, the, the negotiation phase and making sure that we are uh, reflecting uh, services exports more broadly and education as a subset of services exports, uh, but also then in implementation. And um, I do think uh, you, you're exactly right. In fact, there was a, uh, a industry report on uh, a services action plan, uh, which was presented to, to government last year. Uh, and one of the key issues cited there was uh, that services exporters don't know what to do um, with the FTA provisions, even if the provisions are there, um, how to maximise those and how to use those uh, in opening new markets or new opportunities. Uh, I certainly know it's not my area of expertise within Austrade, but I do know that there, uh, there are teams across DFAT and Austrade uh, with a particular focus now on services exports and how we can... Uh, better educate or better um, uh, better implement in in post FTA uh, environments, and then also how we can gather that input moving forward for new FTAs. Um, I do think there's an opportunity to do that collectively, uh, and as other industry sectors do this too. Um, our colleagues in the Grapes Association in other um, agricultural uh, associations working very, very closely and collectively to uh, negotiate uh, conditions and arrangements within FTAs. And I think there's a huge opportunity for us to do that more, um, uh, more effectively working together. 
I think a big part of FTAs that we probably don't fully appreciate is the recognition of uh, qualifications and skills as well. So not just about opening up markets for uh, for us, whether it be transnational delivery, for example, or um, online access, but also about the recognition um, and the um, uh, the opportunity for alignment of uh, professional qualifications and recognition. So there is a role to play for the regulator in in those discussions. Indeed, <laughs> and that. and the and the professional bodies as well, of course, who uh, who are quite active in this space. We're almost at the end of the podcast. I have one final question on China. I forgot we were on a podcast. I just thought I was chatting with you. <laughs> <laughs> China is our single last, largest source of international students and we've long had an eye on India, though perhaps it's yet to fully realise its promise. Gazing into your crystal ball, what's the next emerging market to watch? Oh, uh, I. this is a really tough question because I don't think there is a next and um, let me explain. Uh, I think uh, we've been talking about this for some time. Um, individual institutions um, do this at varying degrees, depending on their on their appetite and their uh, engagement. But I think we need to be looking at our portfolio of markets, um, a a suite of um, audiences who who want what we're selling. Um, if we just keep looking to a market and if we look for the next, uh, we're not going to we're not going to find it. I think taking a portfolio approach will help us manage risk, uh, will improve the student experience, will uh, deliver us diversification that has been long on our agenda um, and ultimately open up opportunities that we're not even aware of yet because we have been focused uh, in, in single markets. And, and I think what we've seen during COVID and what we've had to do um, via digital means um, actually means we can, we can find more audiences or engage in a different way um, than jumping on a plane and doing a trade mission um, or taking a, a, you know, just a single market-led approach. Uh, I have been hearing, though, if you if if I was pushed to talk about uh, which which markets, obviously I'm about to uh, take on a new role, which is focused on ASEAN. Uh, so you would expect me to say, but the I think the evidence is there as well that um, ASEAN represents a huge opportunity for Australian education services, but also uh, those other industries where we started the conversation, those other industry areas where education, skills, training and research are going to be um, absolutely critical. Couldn't agree more. And I, I think taking the first part of your answer, just the next step, it's it's like the engagement and the partnerships that uh, will be of the future will be more better down in authentic, um, authentic engagement. And by that, I mean, it will, it will really matter. It will make a difference. Um, and I'm not saying that they don't now it's the true value of of those has been felt um, when they've been absent during corona and uh, you get the sense that only the authentic and only the absolutely real ones will will make it through post corona indeed indeed and we we must use this time to seek out those uh, those examples and the benefits of those deep relationships and multifaceted relationships as well um, 
uh, not just the movement of students, but uh, the broader engagement, uh, whether that's on a country level or an institutional level or a, uh, you know, an industry partner level. Absolutely. Well, it's been wonderful chatting to you, Rebecca. Thank you for your time and your insights. Please subscribe to the ATN Perspectives podcasts via all channels like Spotify, Google and Apple.